Today is the 29th of November, 2014, and this is episode 166. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. On today's show, Andreas, Stephanie, and I are joined by cryptocurrency evangelist and longtime supporter of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, Anthony Diorio. The first part of today's show was recorded in August, towards the end of the Ethereum fundraiser. We talk Rush Wallet, CryptoKit, Ethereum, and Decentral. Then, we jump ahead three months and check out how things are going with Ethereum and Anthony's new project, Decentral.tv. Enjoy the show. So why don't we start with CryptoKit, Anthony? What is CryptoKit? Why is it different than other Bitcoin wallets? What's cool about CryptoKit, it's, it's a Chrome extension Bitcoin wallet. It installs from the Google Chrome store, one-click install. It's then a wallet that sits in the top of your browser, and you pop it open when you need it. To create a wallet, you move the mouse around the screen, and you've got a Bitcoin wallet without any usernames or passwords. When you're going shopping online, you open it up. It automatically grabs any Bitcoin addresses on the page and populates it into CryptoKit. It also will pull in the amount if you're on a site like BitPay or Coinbase or any other merchant setup system. And it brings the amount in and the address so that you can do one-click payments from CryptoKit. And you basically click off the screen and it disappears. So it allows you to go shopping very easily without having to log into web wallets and copying and pasting addresses. Yeah, so eliminating those other tabs from the equation... What about Rush Wallet? What's different between CryptoKit and Rush Wallet? I heard Rush Wallet was sort of like an Insta wallet. CryptoKit, it's also a set of tools. So in the the extension, you've got PGP encrypted messaging. You've also got Bitcoin charts and Reddit, Google News feed. And what's different with Rush Wallet is Rush Wallet is actually an HTML5 Bitcoin wallet that is cross-platform compatible. Um, it, It works very similar to the way that Insta Wallet used to work. And in fact, the idea came about from Insta Wallet which was a service back in the day that was a very easy to use Bitcoin wallet, but had some flaws in it. Until it got hacked and everybody yeah, lost well, their Bitcoins. Their issue is that they were holding onto people's Bitcoins. And also they had an issue with their, their login system, which was a secret URL system, which was getting spidered by Google. We use a similar system with a secret URL, but we know that we don't get spidered by Google and it's been tested and proven. We've never had a case of a URL getting spidered. And that was through an old we used to have another site that had 4,000 users on it that used the URL system as well. And we were very confident. Anything past the hashtag in a URL never gets sent away from the client side. That's the system that we use. So with Rush Wallet, you go to rushwallet.com, you move your mouse around the screen, or on a touch screen, you drag your finger around a box, and that's creating entropy or randomness on the client side that is then matched with a random generator to create your Bitcoin wallet. And that too doesn't require any usernames or passwords. So it's, we call it like a five second wallet. You move your mouse or, or move your finger and you've got your wallet on the screen there. That URL can then be bookmarked to get back to it. We also added a cool little feature that you can encrypt a password in the URL to add extra security if you want. By default, there's no password. If you want, you can encrypt a password so that anytime you go to that URL, you have to put the password in and the password gets hashed in the URL and it still remains all client side. So it's a decentralized serverless system to actually have a password on the URL as well. I just went to RushWallet.com and actually did that. And it's a cool interface. And it's basically similar to InstaWallet, except you actually get to contribute to the randomness 
by moving your mouse around the screen. And then you've got this custom URL, which you're, you know, obviously going to be guarding with your life if you have any significant amount of Bitcoin in there. Just as a warning to people, obviously, this may not be the place to keep your life savings, but it certainly is a convenient way to just create a wallet. And as I said, you could add a password. So if you do want a little more security, we think of it as a hot, a good hot wallet that when you want a wallet quickly, you have it there. If you want to add more security, you can encrypt the password in it. So I think it can be considered a very secure wallet with the, if you were to put a password on it as well. I would say one of the obvious use cases for this that I've seen again and again for this type of wallet is for a newbie who's walking up to a Bitcoin ATM or someone who's experienced who's walking up to a Bitcoin ATM and wants to put in you know, 20 or $40 into a Bitcoin ATM and just receive the money. They don't want to send it to their main wallet or they don't have Maybe they don't access have a main wallet. to their main wallet or don't have one yet. So you just set this up very, very quickly within a few seconds on your phone, put in 40 bucks into the ATM, get the money zapped as Bitcoin into your Rosh wallet, and then um, you can share that URL with yourself after putting a password on it, obviously, by email or just bookmark it. When you're ready, you can move it into more permanent storage. That's right. And the, the URL actually uses a brain wallet system. So it doesn't look like a brain wallet in the URL, but that code can be imported into CryptoKit. So you can sync both your CryptoKit and your Rush wallet or any other Bitcoin wallet that accepts a brain wallet. So Part of our philosophy is, is a few things. We don't want to hold on to anybody's funds. That's key for any product that we do. Secondly, is if something ever happened to us, there has to be a way for someone to import into another wallet system. That's a couple of the flaws that were in InstaWallet that we've approved on. And I think that's what makes us a much more evolved instant wallet service that's just as easy, but also more flexible in that it can be used in other wallets and we're not holding on to customer funds. I was just going to say, it's sort of like the uh, love child of InstaWallet and uh, blockchain.info, right? Exactly, yes. Is the uh, source code for CryptoKit or for Rush Wallet available as an open source project? Sometimes the code is visible and visible and audible, but we don't consider it an open source. Um, we're still coming up with the licensing and how we want to do that. And I'll use an example. Someone's taken Rush Wallet a couple of days after someone called Myriad Coin. They took our whole wallet, including the look, design, everything, and now launched it as a Myriad coin. So we, this is a project that we've got a company behind it. There are ways that we'll be monetizing in the future. So I don't necessarily it's an op- say it's an open source project, but it is fully audible and viewable, all the code. What, if any, are some of the challenges that you faced in kind of getting CryptoKit and now Rush Wallet out there? Have there been any issues or critics? I think we get people at that, you know, say anything in the URL, you know, have to have a URL, someone could get it, but being a completely client side mechanism, um, unless you're posting that URL somewhere, or if you're on a computer that maybe other people are using, it could go into the history. Yes. And if people are concerned about that, then, then do add a password to it. Makes a lot more sense. And you can then give that URL to anybody and they would have to have your password in order to access it. What about the issue of, of weak brain wallets? Because uh, there was a situation with somebody that I know who had a CryptoKit wallet. You know, it uses brain wallets to, for the back end and apparently had a weak brain wallet that was basically there are bots out there that get all the easy brain wallets and import them into their own wallets and then automatically move the Bitcoins if any Bitcoins come into those addresses. So that actually happened to a friend of mine that was running a CryptoKit wallet. Is there anything that's done to kind of make the brain wallets stronger or more robust? 
When you are given a brain wallet or given a URL, the secret URL, you're moving your mouse and that's creating a long, long string. I think it's 25 or 36 characters. I don't actually remember exactly how long it's. So that's the system we use. That's not an actual brain wallet where it's a phrase that you remember, but it uses a brain wallet system. Because of the way brain wallets work, you can actually create rush wallets that are a brain wallet phrase that you come up with. So as long as it's more than 25 characters, you can create your own brain wallet phrase, and that could actually be your rush wallet or even your crypto kit. But it's something you have to change yourself. Crypto kit, you have the, have the option to import a brain wallet, or create your own phrase, and that can become your wallet. They're not putting a phrase that's ever been written in a book. They're not something that's ever been mentioned before. And we do offer you know guidelines on what we think a secure brain wallet is, but just like any password. I mean, anybody that puts password one, two, three, or the... You know, if you're not smart and don't understand the way they're using it, it, you know, it might not be something you want to investigate and just instead use the system that, that you're given when you create a wallet on Rush Wallet or CryptoKit, which is a very, very long string of code that doesn't resemble a, a passphrase like most people are used to with a brain wallet, something that you can easily remember. Why don't we switch gears? And if, unless you guys have any more questions about Rush Wallet and CryptoKit, maybe we can switch gears and talk about Decentral and what's going on. So Decentral is a 5,500 square foot building in downtown Toronto. We get great visibility for Bitcoin. Uh, I think there's over 100,000 people are passing on a daily basis. Seeing this big orange Bitcoin Decentral sign, which is going to be, the branding is changing. Uh, we're getting a new logo designed for it. We'll be changing the signs to a Decentral logo, but still showing that we are big fans of Bitcoin because we still, when people are coming, taking pictures of that sign, which happens on a daily basis. We still want to show that we are big Bitcoin fans, but I'm much more excited about things going beyond Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is a good case example for this technology, but there's going to be so much more with the space here. We do a Bitcoin meetup on a weekly basis. Uh, we have co-working facilities here that we have. We've got three different exchanges working out of right, right here from Canada. We've got tons of people in the co-working space now. And then upstairs, we're setting up an accelerator program. This was the plan from day one was a co-working space, community building space. And then people are getting into the co-working space, meeting others, forming companies, and putting them up into the accelerator program. And right now we're working to build a fund for the accelerator program. Okay. And how is the fund uh, being put together? We're looking to do institutional investors. It's been tricky to decide how we're going to structure the fund and who we're going to go after. Um, I want to do an accelerator program that's different than perhaps the Y Combinator or Techstars that are out there. And the way that they work is they're offering, let's say, $25,000 to companies into the program. We're offering them mentorship. Um, so we have a, a global network of mentors that have agreed to put their time forward for the project. And then we're going to be giving them guidance of legal and accounting. So we've got in-house legal here. We have in-house accounting inside Decentral. All the tools that companies need in order to focus on their project and put them through a, say, a three-month program uh, deliverables that they have to go through, which lead up to a demo day at the end of putting them in front of investors. I want to do something different that's not traditional, but still, if we're dealing with an institutional investors, you're already getting them into a field that they don't really know, which is the blockchain technology. And that's what we're pushing for is decentralized technology. We're firm believers that decentralized applications will be a big thing in the future. To also come up with a whole new structure for the accelerator, something that I've struggled with, because it may make more sense to come up with something traditional because it's a new field they're coming into, come up with the, the accelerator program that's been tried and tested and proven by another accelerator out there. So 
looking to institutional investors, but perhaps we might go with private funding. I'm still having sure I might even just fund it myself and get this off the ground with a few different companies. I'm still deciding that. Taking us back just a second, you know, I mean, so so you started Bitcoin Decentral and you started the Bitcoin Alliance. And things have been pivoting recently. You know, now you, now uh, Bitcoin Decentral is decentral and you have this involvement with Ethereum for the last six months or so. I'm really curious, you know, what has your journey been like going from someone who very firmly was all about Bitcoin and Bitcoin businesses and all that stuff to now being about decentralized technology or decentralized crypto? And what even would you define your area of interest at this point? My, my area of interest is decentralized technologies. Initially, Bitcoin was everything to me. And what I've learned is that Bitcoin is an example of decentralized technology. And I see other examples and the things that are coming out that is much more exciting to me right now. I'm still a huge Bitcoin fan. The things that, I, that I'm doing in these companies, it's based on Bitcoin. We'll continue to do our meetups and we'll continue to be huge fans. Everybody here is, and that was the liftoff point for us. But I think the decentralization factor is both going to be appealing to more people. I think we even realized when we were meeting with a few different investors and talking about, about the space and getting them excited for decentralized technologies, we used Bitcoin as an example, but it's not the be-all and end-all. It's an example of this technology, but we want to let them know exactly where else, what other uh, industries this is going to be affecting. And I think that more people can relate to that. And I think that Bitcoin has, what you can probably agree, has gotten a lot of bad press. And there are some people just don't understand and they just hear the buzzwords or they hear the headlines. And we just say that this is an example of this technology, but the blockchain technology, decentralized technology is something that, that we're more excited about. That leads us kind of into the final topic for today's conversation, which is Ethereum. You know, it was a long time coming. Crowd sale was expected back in, I guess, February first, uh, February of this year, and uh, it wasn't until I guess about sixteen or seventeen days ago that the the fundraiser actually launched. Launched very quietly. Yeah, it launched very quietly. Indeed, there wasn't a lot of fanfare. But you know, looking at the numbers right now, I see that you guys have raised somewhere in the range of about thirty thousand bitcoins already. So this is, I mean, like by any sort of measure, this has been a wild success. Can you kind of talk to us about the process that brought you to here? You know, what, what took so long? So let me just make some clarifications. We, we talked about it's a product sale. So we're selling Ether, which is a product of fuel that's running the Ethereum network. What took us so long was to ensure that we were comfortable legally we were comfortable with the setup of our organization and we've come a long way and things have changed immensely over the last many months. We're now a foundation, 100% nonprofit. The majority of the, the sale is actually going to be going towards the delivery of the product. And that's the most important thing. We're not involved with business development. We're not involved with anything but getting the platform and getting the protocol put out there. And that's where the majority of the product sale is going to be going towards. Legally, we wanted to make sure that what we were doing, we felt comfortable putting out there in, in the sale. You see that we have a, a quite a lengthy terms and conditions, and we have quite a length, lengthy product details of what exactly Ether is. That's quite a long time to do. We feel comfortable with, with the legalities of it, and uh, we are very happy with the response from the community and the amount of Ether we've been able to sell so far. Is Ether an investment? Or so it's a product sale. So that means so again, like for the purposes of this, this is that conversation where you can sell a product, but an investment is a fundamentally different thing. This is not stock, it's not anything else, it's just a product. It is not an investment, it is a product. It will be needed in order to 
use the decentralized apps that are built on top of the Ethereum platform. So every single app, every single line of code that's executed will require Ether. People who want to use the platform have Ether and therefore should buy Ether. But people who don't necessarily want to use the platform, there isn't much of a reason for them to buy Ether. People that want to develop on the platform are going to need it. And people that want to use the platform and run applications on it will require Ether. Okay, so it's it's an access token. It's, it's an access token that lets you use whatever it is that you're doing with Ethereum. That's right. Okay. So was that a fun distinction to make? <laughs> it was a necessary distinction to make, and, it, and it's quite accurate. We are selling selling the product that's going to be needed, needed to run on the platform, and we sold it in a pre-sale nature. And once the Genesis block goes live, people will have their Ether. And so this is something that's not even tradable. I, you know, I, I read through the vast majority of your terms and conditions. Now, Ether itself won't actually be issued until the real network itself launches. So there's no, so test Ether is something else entirely. And if you want to play with the software now, you don't even need Ether. You can't even use the Ether. All you're essentially doing is just reserving it for when the real network launches. That's exactly right. Have you seen any secondary markets for trading Ether pop up yet? I haven't personally seen any. So speaking of those terms and conditions and the fact that Ether right now is ethereal, pardon the pun, uh, like, there's a section in there that says this software may never actually come out. What's that all about? I mean, I know that freaks some people out. I can explain why that was uh, put in there. I guess our, our lawyers, we needed to feel comfortable with that. So, I mean, it is our intention to put the software out there. I'm very comfortable or confident that that will get done. However, you know, we, we can't see into the future. And I just think that that was something that was a precautionary method just to make sure that we put that in there. So was this the hardest part about Ethereum so far? I mean, like, again, like, uh, it seems like I've talked to you a number of times and other people within the Ethereum organization. It seems like a variety of times everything has been ready except for the legal stuff. Like I, I was even seeing uh, there's a, a note about what you spent money on so far and the single largest cost was legal, right? Yeah, I believe I think legal was the most expensive thing we've done so far. So, I mean, you guys even you're, you're based out of Switzerland. You've uh, you know worked with uh, legislators there. I mean, like lacking resources to do something like this. Would you have done this project at all? Would it have been done differently? I'm just just trying to figure out like exactly how disruptive the legal part, the well, what section does this fall under? How disruptive that's been? It's definitely the thing that's held us back, but. We want to carry this through, and it doesn't help if we are fighting regulations in different countries when we're trying to get this product out down the road. It had to come down to the part where we felt comfortable releasing it the way that we did and doing the sale the, the way that we put it out there. And that's basically what took so long, and it does take a while because we were dealing in different countries. It's not going to help for us to be battling this moving forward if, if we hadn't done things properly. So, I mean, how comfortable can you actually feel about this. It seems like it's totally uncharted territory. And there are a lot of people talking about it online and treating it as though it's an investment. People, the amounts of Ether that some people are buying, we don't actually know really how much Ether is going to be required to write contracts and use the platform. But, you know, there are some people putting very large amounts of capital into buying Ether. Is that really congruent with the idea that they're going to be just using it all to write contracts? Aren't people kind of treating it as an investment? That's what I'm saying. You know what? I can't really speak to say what people are, are treating it as. We made it very clear that, that it is a product and it'll be required. To, in order to use the platform, you're going to be required to have Ether. Whether or not, you're going to be building applications on top of Ethereum or you want to actually run the apps that will be developed on, on the platform. 
I understand. I just, I wonder if government agencies kind of tend to do what they want. And so even if you think that you got all the ducks in a row legally, you know, they could pull something out of totally left field. Is that concern? Have you been building up fund in case that happens for legal defense or anything like that? I don't know where this is going to go. I just want to say that we, we feel comfortable with the way that we've done it and we feel pretty confident. So I actually have a listener question here. Anthony, we've talked about kind of the legal stuff surrounding this. I'm curious about the actual, you know, what people are going to use Ethereum for. Ethereum is a new kind of layer one blockchain, right? It's like Bitcoin in that it doesn't, you know, build on Bitcoin's blockchain. It actually has its own blockchain. And uh, you can, you know, build these contracts on that blockchain. But what I'm wondering is, uh, what, do you, what about middleware? Is everyone just going to use Ethereum directly on that platform? Or are you anticipating and is there any sort of incentivization? for people to build interfaces or just essentially middleware solutions to make it easier for users to interface instead of going through the, the base level platform? I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that. I know people are building tools to make it easier for developers to build on top of the Ethereum platform. I don't think I can speak much to things being made to go around the platform or middleware. It's not really go around the platform. It's more like counterparty, right? Counterparty is a layer that lets you do stuff on top of Bitcoin that you can't do just with Bitcoin. So one assumes that although Ethereum has more features, it also would have the, it's a platform. And so people are able to build more services on it. So anyways, I I appreciate you not being able to answer the question. I'm just curious. There's already a fork or a clone of Ethereum, right? Or one that's planned. It's Ethereum, if you heard of that. Yeah, I've heard of it. I don't know too much about it though. What are your thoughts about the open source nature and people basically creating Ethereum clones or forks? I think that's going to happen, but I think with the amount of Ether that we've sold, I think the, the community is confident in what we're doing and is backing what we're doing. So I think it's very difficult to have forks that might uh, get, get enough traction or actually compete with the Ethereum platform. One question that I've heard come up again and again, and this is sort of why I was asking before about people maybe on the internet thinking of Ethereum as an investment, even though you've you've really made it very clear that you're selling a product, it's not an investment. One criticism that I've heard come up a lot is that you really don't know what you're getting by buying into Ether. You don't know how many Ether there are going to be or what their value is going to be or what you can do with them or how much of the total Ether you're really going to be getting. What do you say to that? Yeah, you don't know how much of the Ether you would be getting um, in terms of knowing how much will be created. The ongoing yearly amount is derived from the initial sale amount. So there will be you will be able to, once a sale is done, know exactly how much Ether will be out there in the future. So that is something that is known. I don't think I want to talk about the value of Ether. We've set the price of it right now. But I don't think I want to talk too much about value of Ether in the future. Oh, what about the relative value? I mean, so say somebody um, spends one Bitcoin and then they get 1900 something Ether right now that that's going to go down over the time. What can they actually expect to be able to do with that? That's what I'm confused about. They will be able to run computations on the platform. So the apps that come out on Ethereum. Yeah, but how much? I mean, what are they going to be able to compute with, with the one Bitcoin? worth of Ether? Well, it's not about the Bitcoin. It's it's about Ether. It's about how much the Ethereum platform will require in Ether in order to run the computations. And I think that's laid out and spelled out in our technical documents, but I don't personally know that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I I find it pretty amazing that there have been 25,000 Bitcoins at the time of this recording, maybe even more uh, that have been raised in exchange for Ether. And 
uh, it seems like nobody really knows exactly what they're going to be able to to do with that ether. Well, one assumes it's more than you could do without it. That that's about all I can assume, right? <laughs> no, I mean these are uncharted waters. That's that's the reality of the situation. Is that you know ether's doing something that's really never been done before. So, Anthony, I, I do have another question. Um, so you guys have raised a large amount of money, and you said at the beginning of this conversation that you are not. Uh, you know, the decision was made to turn the foundation entirely not for profit and to not focus on anything other than developing the platform. So what are you going to do with all that money? I mean, are you literally just going to spend, you know, like $20 million over the course of the next couple of years developing the base level platform or is there some other plan? Yeah. So a large percentage is going to the delivery and that will be set up in a few different countries. They're going to be hiring employees really soon, setting up their physical spaces. And a smaller portion is going to be going to the cryptocurrency research group. And then, of course, to the education and the community that will be creating things around us here. And that's pretty much the layout of where the, where the money will be going. Is there a um, time frame over which you guys anticipate this being dispersed? The initial product sale funds? Yeah, the initial product sale funds. I mean, like, do you, you have a, an anticipated runway based on, you know, how, how much you guys think you're going to raise? Or is it just, well, when, you know, we're raising however much and then we'll use it till we run? On our website, there's actually a very clear understanding of where the BTC collected will be just dispersed. It's actually a guiding uh, document that shows exactly if we receive as much, what percentage will be going towards delivery, what's going to the research group and different things. So, that's actually a good read if you want to check out all the documents on, on ethereum.org. I saw something on the Ethereum blog about this represents basically the largest use of multi-signature Bitcoin addresses to date, that the, the funds are being held in multi-sig addresses. Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't know if the largest, but it, it is being held in, in a multi-sig. Yeah, it is actually the biggest. You can actually see the statistics on p2sh.info, which is a site that tracks the use of uh, pay-to-script hash addresses. Multi-sig addresses are pay-to-script hash addresses that start with a three. Not all pay-to-script hash is multi-sig, but the one used by Ethereum is. And you can see the amount of Bitcoin stored in pay-to-script hash addresses on this site, p2sh.info. It's rather interesting. The transaction volume has shot through the roof in the last few months and is still increasing very, very rapidly. And as of now, the Ethereum collection address is the largest use of P2SH on the Bitcoin network. Congratulations. That's a very, very good milestone. This is also an important part of corporate governance. Pretty much any company that's getting money from outside sources and has multiple participants should be a multi-sig address, both for protection against external theft and protection against embezzlement. Thanks for the detailed information, Andres. The one thing that I think people may be wondering is that if they haven't been uh, keeping up super intensely with Ethereum since the last time you've been on the show, there have been some pretty major changes, Ethereum, that, I mean, have been a little on the quiet side. One of them being Charles Hoskinson. You know, what happened with him? We've seen people come and go from the project. It, it happens. We've probably had over 100 people working on this. A lot of jobs were finished. My role in doing this might be substantially reduced. Since I'm not you know, involved in the delivery team, You know, I might have a, a much smaller role moving forward. So as we've gone along, there have been different roles that have changed and people have completed certain tasks. So I don't think there's been real many major things that have happened. I think Charles's work was done with the project. He's moved on to some other things. 
but it'll happen in any larger organization. You do get people to come and go, but I, I would actually say that things haven't changed all that much. Still is the same core people that started it. Now, I don't think there's been that many changes. The other change, I mean, is like the shift to the nonprofit thing. I mean, I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse. We've already talked about it, but you know, there was like a lot of controversy back in uh, last spring about the pre-mine that was planned and, you know, moving to this nonprofit model seems to have uh, taken care of that. So that's that's done. That's not happening. There is still an endowment that is a percentage of the of the sale is going towards paying the, the people who have been working on the project. It's going towards people that have been into bootstrap and paying, getting that paid back. There definitely is a portion that's going back to paying those things, but it is a much smaller amount than was initially worked on. I and mean, that was discussed with the community. I and mean, I think we're pretty comfortable. And I think from the amount that we've sold, we can see that people are pretty comfortable with the structure and the way that it's been done. You know, uh, we don't have time to go into it. This has been a great conversation, Anthony. We appreciate you taking the time. But the bit license thing, we have to ask about that. What does that mean for Ethereum? Does it mean anything for Ethereum? Have you guys submitted um, you know, a response or do you just not even care about New York? I th- I think we've submitted a response. I don't think it's something that's really been under our radar that we've actually been thinking about too much. Pretty much a wildly successful sale event. This this was a really good launch that was much anticipated. So what comes next? I mean, the sale is open for another, it looks like two weeks at about the time of this recording. So what should we expect between now and when we talk in, say, four or six months? The biggest push right now is get the developer teams set up. It's like we're going to be doing that in Germany, in Berlin, and in and in uh, Amsterdam. And it's about getting our spaces set up where these developers will be working out of. So that's the biggest thing is getting the delivery team, making it a much larger team than what it is right now, and getting them cracking so that we can get this product out as soon as possible. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins without ever leaving your browser. Today's magic word is wallet. That's W-A-L-L-E-T. Wallet. You've got until the 2nd of December to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Couple of announcements. We had a bit of a spam problem with people submitting posts to the blog that weren't really real posts, and so it was actually more work to look at them and delete them. Anyways, it was a big problem. So now, if you just have a normal account, then you essentially can buy submission credits for 1,000 LTB coin per article that you want to submit. That's about, it's a little bit more than 1% of the expected rewards if you actually successfully get something published to the front page based on the current values we've been having. And of course, You don't have to do this at all if you have an access token that gives you certain permissions that bypass this. So, for example, the podcaster token. Podcasters don't have to pay a submission fee because they are already a trusted group, so we don't need to worry about them spamming up the system. Okay, um, also, my new startup called Tokenly. Uh, I have been pretty quiet about it, but we're working on our first user-facing products based around tokens. should be in public testing early next year. I'm looking for a designer with a good handle of a UI UX, as they say, to help us go from a written and descriptive specification to an implementable minimum viable product kind of design. If you want to be part of some of the leading work that's being done with tokens in the space, send an email to adam at tokenly.co. That's T-O-K-E-N-L-Y.co. 
I know I've been pretty quiet about what we're doing. I'm always very reticent to talk about my projects on my show because I don't want to abuse the platform. But if you have any questions about what we're doing with Tokenly, feel free to send those over to me again, adam at tokenly.co. We're going to do an episode on this pretty quick. And so I'll answer those at that point. Once again, thanks for listening. Back to the show. So this is an addendum interview we're doing with Anthony Diorio over at Decentral up in Toronto. Anthony, thanks for coming back on after, what, three months since we did the last interview and we haven't aired it yet. It's all right. Thanks for having me back on, Adam. I know that most of what's going on is pretty much the same. So can you, can you kind of update us on what's happened since we last spoke in August and what people just heard? You know, we talked about Rush Wallet. We talked about Ethereum. We talked about CryptoKit. We talked about uh, Decentral. You know, what, what in three months has changed? So I, I think when we did the last one, it was near the end of the sale with Ethereum. Since then, and I was talking about it then, is uh, when we decided to turn into a, a foundation nonprofit and focusing on the platform and focusing on the, the development of the protocol, that I would be taking a much lesser role with Ethereum, which was fine with me so that I could focus on Decentral and focus on my businesses here, which is my biggest commitment right now. Co-working space is picking up right now. The ATM sales are doing really well. Our weekly meetups are getting larger and larger. I think we had about 80 people for uh, Andreas who called in last week. We had Jason King on yesterday. We're focusing on focusing primarily on Decentral, focusing on over the last few weeks on Rushwald and CryptoKit. My main focus is going on to Decentral TV, which is a new Bitcoin dashboard, decentralized technology dashboard and video station. So we're doing a daily podcast. It's going to be starting on Monday, a video podcast. Uh, we live stream our meetups and we're going to be carrying content, video content, and try to become you know the place where people are looking for their video content uh, for all things decentralized. A daily TV show. Man, I have to tell you, as a content creator, that's yeah. incredibly ambitious. Well, Stephanie, you could probably appreciate this. Free Talk Live is something that I've you know, I listen daily and I've caught up. So over the, the past two years, I've been listening. I've listened, I think, every single episode. And I'm actually caught up as, as of yesterday. So for those who don't know, wow. Free Talk Live is a show that Stephanie co-hosts, but will be ending your last one on Sunday. Is that right? I'm actually leaving Free Talk Live, but I've been on it for about four years weekly. And it's been awesome. And that is a nationally syndicated radio show, but they also do a video feed of the show. We don't put a lot of effort into the video portion. It's just kind of us, you know, sitting there and talking. But there is daily video that's produced from Free Talk Live. But what's great in the model that we're using is the number of co-hosts that we have on our show. So we're able to split up the five days a week that we're going to be doing. We might do seven as well, like Free Talk Live does. But we're splitting it up with co-hosts. So myself and uh, Ethan, who helped me run Decentral here, will be the main two hosts. And then we'll have co-hosts, 10 or 12 of them, that will be rotating in uh, an hour uh, or two each a week on the three chairs that we have. So with something like that, you know, Free Talk Live, it's about consistency. And that's what we want to do with our show here. We want a daily show that people can come and know it's on at a certain time and get their fill for Bitcoin. And we're making it video because we have the studio here. And I just don't think there's anything else that's, that's really doing much video up there. So we're splitting it up with many different people. We're going to have call-in special guest hosts. But we're able to do something with many people involved that are going to bring to the table specialties of accounting, legal, security, um, 
ATM people, exchange people, all on a regular basis that people can get to know and look forward to on a reoccurring basis. And it will be a call-in show uh, starting in the next couple of weeks where people can call in and ask questions to us too. So that's the main focus of what we're working on right now. The dashboard itself is called Decentral.tv. And within there, you have customizable Bitcoin prices. You've got Twitter feeds, headline news, different altcoin prices, everything that you pretty much need in Bitcoin. And then the video content is about two-thirds of the screen. So that's what we're trying to provide as a dashboard and then be updating content regularly, uh, video content. So it's not just going to be about what's happening in Toronto. It's, it's basically Bitcoin news and it's a wide-ranging show, it sounds like. That's right. We're even contemplating calling it Decentral Talk Live. So it's all things decentral. <laughs> That's the plan. And, and I just, uh, I, you know, it, the model is definitely what we're using is, is the idea of free talk live this. Cool. So are you going to be on it every day or is it like someone comes in each day, they've got a key to the studio, they do the whole thing, including posting the show, running the calls that day, but, they, but each individual only has to do it once every two weeks. Yeah, so I plan on being four or five days a week. Ethan as well, who'll be doing producing. And then there is the one chair, which will be rotated out on a regular basis every day. And then we'll also have special Skype guests doing the call, and just like I'm doing right now with co-hosting of, of, of LTB. So we'll have somebody calling in through Skype, and that'll be the show will be about them as well. Maybe once or twice a week we'll do that. One day we'll be doing reviews, talk about what's been going on that day in, in the Bitcoin and crypto space. Wow. So one question, I guess, that always comes up when we're talking about podcasts or new content, is this going to be like just a volunteer effort or are you going to try to turn it into a business? Because, you know, volunteers, I know on Free Talk Live, the co-hosts often work for free, but sometimes they lose steam after, you know, a couple months or a couple of years of doing that. So are you going to be able to, to run it sort of as a business or what's your business model for it? So Decentral.tv is the dashboard. That's the actual station. We expect people to be going and checking on a daily basis because that's just basically everything you need to know all amalgamated in one place, whether it be Reddit news, um, Coindesk articles. And we've got a partnership coming up that hasn't been announced yet because I'm waiting for them to actually announce it over the next couple of days. We're partnering with a media company to be, be providing all their video content and providing the links. They're providing the news on their site and will be the video content provider. Uh, it's going to make a big splash, I think, once this announcement comes out. And I just don't want to say anything yet because they haven't put the press release out. But we've been working on a partnership for a while. It will be sharing advertising revenue with the dashboard Decentral TV. And then the goal is to actually make it profitable, the show, down the road. But we will have advertising on there. It could be something similar to what, what you're doing with, with LTV here. So when is this going to roll out, you said, next week? Yeah, so we did our first run-through of a full-hour show today. Um, we're going to be recording that tomorrow. And next week, as soon as the press release comes out from uh, this other source, we're ready to go. Decentral.tv will be launched. People will be able to check that out. We've, we've been testing it out over the last couple of meetups. So with Andreas last week, we were able to do that live on Decentral TV. Um, it's, it's all ready to roll up. I'm hoping Monday uh, we'll have our first two episodes launched. And we'll probably be doing maybe two half hours per day and then releasing one half hour episode each day. And then we'll be adding also a review show in the coming weeks where we actually think that there's really a lack of reviewing Bitcoin products out there. Um, so we want to do a video show that's, that's reviewing Bitcoin software, Bitcoin hardware, different ATMs. So that's going to be the second show that we'll probably put out. And then we'll be looking for content that other people can provide and add to our playlist for the station. Very cool. Yeah, I wish awesome. you the best Seriously. of luck with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
The I'm last curious. time we spoke, it looked like Ethereum was going to be successful because it already had been pretty wildly successful, but it hadn't actually closed. So what was that final number you guys ended at? It was 30,000 Bitcoin, which at the time I think was valued at, at 18 million. Um, but of course, it's significantly been reduced over the last little while. Um, the joys of Bitcoin, right? That's right. That's right. But I'm really happy with the progression, especially over the last month or so. So after the initial setting up phases, we are in many different countries right now. And that has actually led to some difficulties. It's hard to set up multiple spaces at once. So we've got setups now in Amsterdam. We've got our Swiss hub. We've got UK and Germany. The initial few months has been dealing with that, getting it set up, getting the actual physical spaces ready. But we're seeing a lot of movement over the last couple of weeks. We're doing a lot more support now for developers that are going to be building on top of Ethereum. There's a new website that'll be coming out. They're building a curriculum, tutorials, videos, and articles for developers that want to start developing in, with Ethereum. Global Hackathons is on the radar for Stefan, who takes care of all our communications. The hubs are on their way. We've been hiring developers, probably a little slower than, than anticipated, but it's, it's coming through. The proof of concepts are moving along. I think POC 7 is going to be coming at any time. At most, there will be a POC 8, Proof of Concept 8, before the actual Ethereum 1.0 gets, uh, gets released. So I'm seeing a lot more momentum over the last month, and uh, I'm really excited with the progress that uh, the team's been making. So when, <laughs> I think the question everyone wants to know is, when do you think the, this 1.0 release is going to happen? Between the 21st December and March 21st. That's the window right now. A lot of it comes down to security right now. So there's gotta go through a lot of testing on the security end. And I think within that range is what we're hoping for, but at the very late, I think March 21st. So we're trying to keep with the winter, which is what we've said all along. All right, well, Anthony, thanks very much again for spending some time with us. And we look forward to catching up with you again in, I guess, another three to six months. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening to episode 166 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas, Stephanie, Anthony, and Adam. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.